Hello, welcome to the No Opinion Podcast, Season 2, No Space for Design. I'm Lyle Bruce. And I'm Ryan McLeod. And we run Agency of None, we're a design studio in Dundee. This season of the No Opinion Podcast is supported by the National Lottery through Creative Scotland. In episode one, we're going to be looking back at collective spaces that used to exist in Dundee and looking at see what we can learn from, from what happened to them. Yep, and we'll also be um, exploring the Westward Works development, the the potential of that, and then how ultimately it ended up failing. So let's get on with episode one. So first we're going to hear from Joe Helfer. She's going to take us back to 2009 uh, when Tin Roof began or the, the idea came about. I graduated from Duncan of Jordanson in 2009. Um, I was group, part of a group of some like very sort of active graduates who were all kind of keen to stay in the city. At that time, there was no studios for artists apart from WASPs. And at that point, there was about four years waiting list for a studio at WASPs. And many of us were working, you know, part time various odd jobs kind of not necessarily immediately getting any work um so even the sort of more established studio costs were very out of reach for us um but we were really keen to stay in the city and i think what's maybe a important context is that at that point it was very unusual for graduates from any of the courses to stay in the city and the assumption was that everyone would leave and presumably go to Glasgow or Edinburgh or London or, you know, chase the work where it was. And it was definitely not in Dundee at that point. And into 2010, I was involved in a few different projects with Art Angel. And we were going around the city, kind of exploring urban spaces and what different spaces meant to people. And I remember I had been walking past the old foundry building on Belfield Street, which is now 71 Brewing. But at that point, it was like a removals company and it was also sitting empty and there was various kind of small businesses that were like in there temporarily. Anyway, so I was doing this project with Art Angel and Ultra Red and describing my ideas for setting up an art space which would be for artists to have studios and a workshop to make sculpture um, really recognizing that there wasn't a kind of sculpture workshop in Dundee but there were in other cities um, and also really wanting it to be a resource that could be used by the local community that was an open yeah a kind of open space um, that could be used in a lot of different ways and that was really my only thoughts at that point Quite quickly, a lot like a bunch of other graduates who had been in my cohort were interested in this, and we had various kind of meetings in my flat. And fairly soon after that, so maybe like summer of 2010, I started to approach people in the council and other, you know, who else is doing stuff in the city? What can I find out? Um, who's you know, who's who's involved in trying to make spaces happen for folk. And at that point, I don't know if it's still 
a part of the council, but there was a kind of innovation community space branch, which you could go in and make an appointment with and talk about your ideas and, and you're quite keen to, to have a meeting. Um, and I explained, I had a business plan which covered all the different projects that I wanted to do and how I foresaw them supporting both the local community and the artistic community. Um, and it was very obvious that this idea was not something that they wanted to happen or thought was viable. And in the meeting, I was told that this wasn't, Dundee wasn't the place for artists to thrive. And that if I wanted to do something like this, he recommended that I move to uh, Glasgow or London, and that's more likely to succeed there. So I was quite annoyed <laughs> and I decided, well, it was almost kind of like lighting a fire under me where I was like, okay, you're telling me I can't do this, so I'm going to try and do it to prove you wrong. And we we got a lease that started on the 1st of January 2011 and we set up studios there. We had 20 studios and a huge outside yard space, which was incredible because so many people were making large scale work that needed space and there was a wood and metal workshop in the back and we ran using a kind of um it's like an artist run space model um we borrowed the constitution from generator projects and then they had borrowed their constitution from transmission in glasgow so many of scotland's uh artist run spaces actually have used that model from when transmission first opened which is actually interesting because it's when artists were able to claim benefits whilst also volunteering full time. Um, and now, obviously, it's impossible to do that. Um, and essentially, artists drawing the dole, able to run these spaces on a relatively livable wage from, from benefits. And that's how all of these spaces sustain themselves, is these artists would be on their committees for a couple of years, draw the dole, and then after a couple of years, they'd move on and a new group would take over. And, and we had, hadn't really been super aware of that context um, until later. And we really realised that it was quite unsustainable for us to all be working to make this space a thing whilst also not being paid. Um, and it's certainly a testament to the energy that you have in your early 20s that we were able to do that for such a long time. So, yeah, I mean, Joe makes a really interesting point there about student life and life after education and trying to find your uh, your place to continue your, your creative pursuit after that. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people do choose to leave our cities, you know, and especially cities that base themselves around education. They they tend to, to come in, study, and then leave and go elsewhere. What she made point of is that they needed to do it themselves. That's probably something that we'll find as we go through some of these, these chats, is that it's the common thread that people just had to do it themselves because there, there, there really was nothing else uh, to help them. Yeah, they've identified a need, a want, a desire, and like a found a collective group that that have similar feelings and then decided to actually do do something about it. 
and I think when you, you know, we, I think when you do take these sort of concerns and, and, and needs to, to people who maybe can help, then there is a challenge of actually being taken seriously. And I think, you know, if we talk about repeating sort of trends in trying to set up creative spaces, it's probably also that aspect that we, we are doing something that's fundamentally quite untangible. It's like you're saying, right, believe in us and we will produce great things in the future. And that's, that's a really tricky sell to somebody who maybe just looks at figures and says, how do you make your money? And I think often it's measured on those, as you say, those very stark black and white figures. Um, and it's not on the other values that are brought in by creativity and by a culture and by a community that is created. And I think we're going to come back onto to Joe's story of Tin Roof, and it is one of where the, the community that they had built in that space was starting to grow and to flex and to have needs. And the collective was then starting to look at, well, how do we facilitate that? How do we change the infrastructure? And actually, ultimately, that's what led to the downfall of the space. Um, so, yeah, we'll go, go back to to Joe to tell the, the sort of the end of that story and of Tin Roof. So we were in the building from January 2011 until June 2016. And... It was brilliant. We had over 100 artists come through our doors. Um, we had two gallery spaces which were widely used, particularly by the student community who needed space to have exhibitions. We even had a regular group of students from Aberdeen um, from Gray's School of Art that would come down a few times a year and put on exhibitions there. It was a really great connection between the two cities through Tin Roof and that exhibition space. Um, and around beginning of 2016, we realized that what we wanted to do was install a ceramics workshop. Um, we, there was a huge need for it. There was lots of people in Dundee who were making ceramics and who were really needing a kiln and space to work. So we applied for Creative Scotland funding to install a, a ceramics workshop inside the building uh, at, on Belfield Street and what we realized is that we needed to increase the electricity um, supply so we needed to put in a new three-phase um, cable which cost like five grand <laughs> um, for the just for the cable um, and we didn't have the money from Creative Scotland to do that we had to try and raise that independently. So we knew that we were going to have to try and get a long-term lease in order to then receive uh, the security to be able to get capital funding. So that's what we tried to do at that point, is we spoke to the landlord and mentioned that we'd like a longer-term lease. Um, the landlord had also had some interest about the downstairs space. And at that point was having architects visit the building to try and write up this more secure lease for downstairs. Um, we actually, and at that point, I remember we met the guys who were wanting to rent downstairs and we were, they were very keen to have an arts collective 
sharing this building with them and they were, they liked the idea of there being artists in and around their space and their plan was to set up this brewery um and through having the architect there and the guys downstairs who were then bringing in building regs folk from the council we were then told that our building our studio site was not was not up to regulation and that we would need to install a new fire escape and a wheelchair access ramp in order to be allowed to continue renting the space and using the space and our um, landlord's architect quoted us a minimum of 100k to do that work um, and bearing in mind our overheads at this point were about 500 pounds 500 to maybe 800 pounds a month um, so there was no way we could we could find that money in the short amount of time that we were given to find it um, the council the Sorry. council basically said you're not unless you get this work done in the next sort of six to eight weeks, you're out. Um, and, you know, it's not, our, us moving out of Belfield Street wasn't the end, it wasn't the nail in the coffin, but we've, we're now running the Dundee Ceramics Workshop and I'm still on the board to sort of help that happen. Um, we have two studio spaces in Wasps and it's fine. It's not, it's not the vision that I, you know, hold for the longer term. Um, I would love to see a space where art, you know, a bigger space where artists were supported and able to do the the more sculpture type work, which is, I think, really still missing. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting point about um, you know the, the 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 space that you kind of move into when you're doing something like Tin Roof. Um, and you're taking on a space that's not really fit for anybody else but a creative community to kind of come in and, and, and use. But as that community starts to grow and as it starts to have these needs for extra equipment and, and things like that, then you are going to have to go for investment. You're going to have to look for, for uh, you know, you're going to have to open up what you're doing to other people and they're going to look at it and say, actually, wait a minute you're not meeting the, the health and safety needs, you're not meeting the requirements for um, basic uh, workplace provision. And you know, that's where we fall down time and time again, I think, as a creative community. We do things because there's a need for them to be there. We don't have much support to make that happen, so you make do with what you can. And then as it starts to show that it's going to have some real potential, that's often when when we we get ourselves into sort of the problems like what what Joe found, and I think it also to me there's a really interesting point there of like there's another company moving into part of that building, and they have a much more traditional business model. They're a brewery, and you know by being that traditional business model, that's allowed them to attract investment and funding and an architect and come in and start to look at how to do the space properly, and. You know, it's through it's first of all it's through that that's that, that has has kind of highlighted the, the failings in their own space, but it's like they should be able to attract that same amount of 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 investment into what they're doing because there's just as much value in what it is that they're doing, 
but it's harder to prove it. And it's harder to be able to put those figures down on a spreadsheet. And I think we will come back to that building um, and and 71 Bruin and their plans going forward because um, there is a now a proposed um, creative use and combination with, with the brewery um, that Gary Kennedy, the architect, will be talking about in a, in a later episode. Um, but we're going to going to move on to our second space um which is fleet collective and yeah i mean since you were one of the the, f- the, the founders of it i suppose lyle um is probably you can introduce that one to us <laughs> yeah i mean this so uh, you know fleet collective is something that that i helped set up with uh, donna hofford level who um back in 2011 we, we kind of decided that you know there was a need for for creative space uh, in the city, they, we needed to have a, a kind of co-working space for desks. I mean, I at that point in my life, I was I was um, working out of my house, kind of becoming quite isolating, and and I kind of wanted to have a space back in the city centre that I could that I could go and work in and be part of a bigger community. And um, Donna had similar sort of visions. We'd both seen different different projects in different parts of the world, and I uh, thought this was something that, that that was needed and we could make this work and it was always in the front of our minds to make this a sustainable model you know that that was very much how we approached it it was like we're not just doing this but without the sort of you know having a landlord that understood what we we're trying to do we, you know we try to approach everything exactly the right way try to make it sort of financially work um so i'll pass over to donna he'll explain a little bit more this is from a previously recorded uh, episode of creative chit chat and we're using this because we felt it was quite poignant uh, as it was recorded just after the decision to close Fleet Collective was made. It, I think it was really quite simple and it was about providing a space, affordable space for people like recent graduates or people like us in the same situation where we kind of, I mean, Lyle's been freelance for years, but he'd been working at home and I think he'd had enough of being... Uh, going a bit crazy at home and just needed somewhere to sit and do stuff so yeah I was trying to sit in his kitchen saying no Lyle we do it like this and Lyle's like no we do it like this and um, we just ended up signing an agreement with the guy who owns the chamber building a good agreement because at the time it was inhabitable so it was dusty it was there was no insulation, there was no heating, so me and Lyle just kind of slowly moved in, kind of trying to do bits and bobs. We we got a bit of cash. I borrowed some cash from my mum and dad. Lyle got a bit of cash just to buy desks and stuff. And um, we just we just winged it. It was just let's just do it and try it and see and and. And the more people we talked to, they were like, yeah, 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 we need space. This is what we need. So really and truly, it was about trying to create a little community um, that was slightly more uh, geared towards people uh, working desk-based stuff. So um, although I was interested in maybe we could make spaces for sculptors and painters and there was a, there's a small provision for, for that in Dundee and not a, a provision for uh, graphic designers, freelance graphic designers or freelance sound artists or, you know, desk-based. Desk so then we started, because we'd also started looking at, well, not just 
providing desk space, actually providing work opportunities for those people who were at those desks. So the idea was that if we could all pitch in for a particular job, we would all benefit from it. So the model was that uh, you still worked as an individual, but fleet as an entity uh, tried to almost work as an agency or like a broker or a commissioner or a fundraiser so that you could bring work into fleet that then went to the people who rented desks. So this kind of, nobody had heard of that type of way of working where, you know, one company was was primarily there to help other companies to make money and other individuals to make money and not itself. So although we set it up as a company, it's always been a social enterprise in the way it's been run. You know, for example, we had one person that came, uh, he was at Dundee College and he did uh, a summer work experience at Fleet. And when he finished at uh, college, we offered him, if he did some voluntary work in the office, he could have a desk for free for six months. By the end of the six months, he'd he'd graduated in graphic design. And by the end of the six months, um, he started getting his own clients. Now, and then building up his own portfolio, when he did that, he, start, he said, right, I'll stay on, I'll pay for a desk. He's now got a comfortable business. He's just bought a, a, a flat and he's blah, 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 and he's doing really well and he's busy. That That is a, that's the store case study, if you will. That was the, supposed to be the idea. He's graduated from Dundee College and he can stay in the city and make a living. And he's done that through the help of being at Fleet. Yeah, the benefits of having a space like Fleet Collective allowed us to kind of work in interesting ways, ways that we hadn't worked before. And so, yeah, there was a potential there suddenly to to go in and, you know, be part of something else uh, that had a bigger impact in the city other than just working for somebody, creating work and getting paid for it. Um, and through that, we kind of, through Fleet, we kind of worked on all these different projects. One of them was, was the City Culture Campaign, which wasn't something I probably would have ever seen myself getting involved in uh, prior to this and it it was really the fact that Dundee had ambitions to go for this title and they needed sort of big ideas and how you could go about you know engaging a community with it and through having fleet and having access to different people like developers and uh, illustrators and designers and other things we, we kind of decided that maybe we should create a sort of social platform essentially for a city to kind of get behind this 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 bid um, and we created a project called We Dundee, which allowed people to to very simply go on and 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 raise their support. This was in 2013, um, and build this a wall of support online of people and all their ideas and visions that they had for the city. And what that what that became was kind of a go to resource in some ways in the years beyond the the bid for ideas and bits that people wanted to see happening. And a lot of the stuff that came out of that actually ended up happening in the city and it kind of it, it was a real it was a real interesting time to sort of understand that you could create these sort of these tools that could then give people voice that could then see things happening and that wouldn't have happened without having a space like this i mean the other thing that kind of would have, that kind of came out of of of, of fleet that was kind of 
pivotal, I think, as well, was was the Petch Kucha Nights in Dundee, which are a sort of a big cultural hub for people to kind of turn up to and hear very short form talks. And, you know, that wouldn't have happened had we not moved into that building because we, we what came with that building was a was a hall, like a big space, an event space. And as Donna talks about running the Neon Digital Arts Festival at the time, we were also involved with that. And there was a a kind of tricky period with the Neon Festival, which um, where where the the conference aspect of it that had originally started didn't happen for one uh, one year for a particular reason that I probably don't have a lot of time to get into, <laughs> so I won't. Um, so what happened? So what happened was uh, because we had the space underneath Fleet, um, and we had some connections to the people who who had the Pitch Kucha license out in Tokyo. Um, we were able to kind of contact them get a license to run these events set up the first one very quickly and run it from our from our building and that then became a sort of you know an ingrained part of the dundee cultural landscape for well until till now till, till a pandemic slightly put put, put pay to, to the regular occurrences of it and it's now what the, the biggest pecha kucha in the, the uk the biggest regular yes yeah it is and i, I think like fleet collective for me i mean so it's the place where we first met um for me it was a a place that proved you could run your own creative business you could be a freelancer in a city like dundee when i was sort of thinking of moving back i went to university here and then worked in glasgow for a few years and as we were sort of moving back up this way fleet collective gave me the confidence to go freelance to to leave a a full-time job and it allowed me to work with lots of different creatives and i think what was brilliant about it um, again, one of those intangible things that you get from a, a co-working space is that if if you had a problem or a question, and someone in the in the room didn't know the answer, they would know someone who did, um, and that network became so powerful and helpful, um, and you just felt that that support, and that if you ever needed to find something, you you had that resource there, um, and I think all the other things that happened in that space and the the projects that came out of it. Um, the conversations that evolved from some lunchtime chats to become things like um, the open close trails that, that Russell runs, um, well, my creative chit chat podcast, um, like the the work, well, I mean, agency of none essentially, um, and I mean it's when we started out doing design festival and and sort of talked about wouldn't it be great if we could be like producers of that one day. Yeah, and, and I think that's you know, and we were, and it was, and it, and it was a lot of fun. But I also think you know, we did a lot through Fleet Collective to uh, support. Well, first of all, UNESCO City of Design as a title wouldn't have existed if we hadn't gone for the City Culture campaign. If we hadn't built We Dundee, um, I, you know, that wouldn't we wouldn't be a UNESCO City of Design. Um, and I think you know, potentially we might not even have a museum of design in Dundee because of, you know we had there was a lot of support around at that time for bringing that that building to the city we worked very closely with the team at the time and um you know we put on a lot of events uh and you know th- we brought that that sort of community together to to kind of champion this 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 building to come to our, our city and i kind of look back at that now and i think you know we've lost a lot of that momentum that 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 collaborativeness that that sort of uh, drive to create new things and do that, and and we've sort of settled back into a very much a organisational structure, if that makes sense, uh, in the cultural community. And um, I think the creative community 
lent a lot to that 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 energy and the lack of these co-working and shared spaces and just generally ability to mingle um has has had a really detrimental effect and i think yeah absolutely and but ultimately um fleet collective didn't survive and i'm going to bring donna back in again um to to sort of explain the, the complex story of, of what happened and ultimately um, why Fleet Collective failed. I don't think I've changed a lot, but my kind of workload changed a lot when I started getting more involved with Neon and helping with their festival. And I think just quite recently, my involvement with Neon has is, is increased exponentially. And... Um, fleets suffered as a consequence of that, unfortunately, because eventually Lyle, although he was a director in the beginning, resigned being a director and just wanted to be a tenant. He says, I want to just be part of this, not have to worry about the business side. So for a long time, it was just me. Um, but fleet needs, in fact, fleet needs a full-time team to actually keep keep it going and keep managing it because it's it's you know it's got to the point now where um desk space just isn't enough to make it sustainable because the rent's gone up it's, it's catch 22 because the more people you get in the more your bills go up i haven't been around enough i suppose to try and Bring, bring in that other extra work that, that could potentially cover those. So, um, and I'm not in the office and I'm not on the ground enough to kind of keep on top of that. And also you need a full-time person, you need a salesperson to promote the place as somewhere to, to, come and, to come and sit and do your work and to promote what Fleet is. So again, we don't have a marketing budget. So, you know, we scramble about trying to do marketing. I mean, usually it, in the beginning, word of mouth was enough, but it, it's not anymore. And Neon, for the past few years, has also had a space down at the Vision Building, which originally was to be, it, it helps with uh, events and it, it was a venue to kind of, to do performances and that kind of thing, but it's become kind of an office space down there. It houses quite a lot of our assets and our kit that we've acquired. Um, and now we rent desks down there as well to kind of different different organisations. It doesn't function the same as Fleet. It's not quite the same. It's just a pure kind of desk space. But uh, last year we, we worked really hard on developing a new three-year business plan and we submitted to Creative Scotland's regular funding round and last week it was announced that we got funding uh, so we've now become uh, a regular funded organisation with Creative Scotland that gives us funding for three years and that's actually gonna that pays that that that's uh, a paid position to me for me to manage it properly uh, so again, my role in that is going to increase. And then before 
was actually during the install of last year's Neon, I became unwell. And then I've recently done a stint in hospital. So I had to make that decision. I've made that decision to kind of stop doing as much as I do. I think I've done my tour of duty. It's getting more and more difficult to balance everything. It's getting more and more difficult to uh, keep fleet above water. Um, at, you know, in its in the current in its current form, and the current situation, it just doesn't look sustainable. Um, ideally, it needs to. You know, we need to employ a team of a marketer and a salesperson. So, after the a few discussions with the directors and the members, we are closing the doors to fleet. And uh, I don't think it's a sad thing. I think we've done some great stuff. I think we've kind of, we have proved it can work. And hopefully the people that have worked here uh, for over a long period of time have established themselves in the city and can see themselves staying and continuing to work and, and kind of, you know, and I think a lot of people have been involved with things like, you know, like the design festival and got involved with the culture, city of culture bid and, and has made them kind of really integrated in, in the city and Fleet was all a part of that and helped it, you know, feel like, you know, Dundee can do stuff. You know, you don't need to go anywhere else. You could stay here and, and kind of have a really good time and, and be sustainable. I mean, Fleet had obviously been quite successful, had had grown quite well, um, and we were for quite a long time quite a, a good model for sustainable uh, collective spaces. Um, but I think really ultimately what happens is, you know, we, we, we needed to keep bringing in projects and developing and growing more as a, as a more of an agency model to, to, to Fleet. And we needed somebody to kind of, to kind of, you know, be in charge of that and run that. And, you know, Donna was obviously expanding Neon as a festival. That's where her passion was. You know, um, you and I were kind of looking to leave and go and set up our own uh, studio. Our, our, that's where our, our direction was focusing. And I think that that's what Fleet needed was maybe a bit of investment at that point to bring somebody in to kind of turn that and run that space. Um, and, and, you know, keep it, keep it, you know, bringing in more, more money because, you know, rents were going up and uh, other costs were accelerating and that's that's the challenge of these these spaces if you you know you really need somebody whose focus is on it all the time to develop it and not just like a couple of people who are also trying to run other businesses as well yeah and i think like that comes at a price so you need to pay a salary in order for someone to to manage the space and ensure that they are marketing the space and fill in the the empty desks that are there and that was again another reason why um what led to its downfall was that yeah there were just too many empty desks that that weren't being filled so i mean i guess you know like donna talks at the end of that episode about um about vision building and moving things to vision and you know, that's probably also another factor in this is that at that point Donna had two spaces. You know, she she had the vision building and she had fleet and she also had the neon festival. And the vision building was to all intents and purposes free, you know. And 
fleet had overheads. So, you know, at that point, I think the decision was made to shut fleet, to move the things to the fission building, allow focus to be on Neon and building up the, the, the people that were there, um, you know, because that was the easier option at the time. There was too much stress attached to running a sustainable space and juggling your own business. And and financially, it, it made more sense to to relocate the vision building where it was more manageable and and able to to give desk space at an affordable rate because of the deal that was there with the the landlords. So at at this point, I want to bring in Mal Abbas, who is creative producer and founder of Biome Collective, who are a a, a creative games collective. Based in Dundee, who were part of that vision space? Yeah, so the vision building was really made possible because of uh, Donna and Neon. The way it was set up as a charity, it meant that they, they had quite a massive space. They had, you know, um, their approach to creativity and community was very kind of open door policy. So we were given space as part of that to be part of that kind of. A journey to try and create a cool space for people um and yeah i think it was quite a big unit at the time the vision building was not fairly empty but there was quite a few empty units so we were really collectively creating a cool space so that the um the owners could essentially <laughs> sell the building because it was like it became a cool hit place we literally had people coming in every other day to come see the space, not just to not just to actually take it over, but just to see a cool space. Like the the council would bring people in just to come look at it. Look, this is the cool creative part of Dundee. It was a bit weird. We're like a bit of a kind of zoo, a bit of a zoo. Uh, we're trying to do our work, whatever. But we really we there was a bit of a buzz there. It attracted more people. It was very affordable, you know. Um, um, and it just attracted quite a spectrum of people from different ranges of disciplines, identities. It was just nice. Certainly for us, it was a benefit to have a space that we could hold events in. I, I had lots of small events there, kind of uh, sharing things, Arcadian, small Arcadian nights, and um, even invited clients over to do workshops, interactive workshops. It was just a cool, adaptable space. Um, but we always had it on a very short-term lease. We always knew that we were really probably, you know, six months or three months away from being kicked out. Um, and over the, the longer we were there, that became maybe six months, maybe became a year. But towards the end, it got shorter again as the actual building started being occupied. Um, and funny enough, I work in the game sector. And it, it actually, it's mostly games companies now that have taken over. It's almost like in that time, in the past five, six years, a lot of game studios have done quite well. They wanted to expand their teams and invest in infrastructure. And the vision building became a nice thing for that because it became cool. We put it on the map. Collectively, we all put it on the map. It became part of the conversation, which is good. You know, I'd rather see it being full rather than it being empty. However, I do feel it's kind of missing its heart now in a sense that what the other guys, you know, they operate more traditional studios where it's, you know, it's NDAs and, it's all kind of uh, tinted or, you know, frosted glass or whatever. Whereas with us, it was like an open door policy and it was friendly, it was accessible. And it just meant that when there was like a, a delegation from Singapore coming to town, 
they could come and see us and see the creative industry in action. And I, I just think there's just something to that, like um, making creativity accessible, not just to guests or whatever, but to the, to the general public, which is missing from the city. I know it's been, it's been attempted at various times. Yeah, I can probably relate quite a lot to that that creative zoo that Mal talks about. Um, I think we probably had that a lot at Fleet Collective as well. And and you know this this is the thing about having interesting creative spaces is that they are quite appealing to you know come in and see and see what's going on and the work that's happening in there. Even if maybe the people who are organising these these trips don't fully understand what they're doing and why they're there, it's still an interesting way to show that your city is doing something innovative and, and interesting and you know you you kind of can't do that with some of the bigger companies so when you've got the sort of it's actually the high growth model of of a game studio you know it's that's maybe 300 staff strong they're going to be working on big commercially sensitive projects they're going to probably have these ndas in place they're not going to want you to come in um so so these these co-working or shared use spaces are, are much more accessible and i think that's also a healthy thing to be able to i mean uh, it's it's frustrating as you know it's frustrating as hell when you're running a space like that and you're not getting much support to then be touring people around and saying how great everything is and look at all the stuff that we're doing um but i do think that like design and, and creative processes should be much more visible anyway and i think we saw that ourselves when we went and visited helsinki for the last season of this and you know you can you can check back those episodes in season one um but you know Helsinki, we found that design was often very visible. It was in street level, and you could see through windows and see stuff happening, and it was interesting. and And you connected to it, even if that wasn't you weren't a designer or a creative person in particular. You you, you were able to to see that that was going on, and that was a viable option uh, for for your for life, you know. Um, and these things were changing stuff in your city. Yeah, and I think there's there's sort of two sides to that where you have parades of delegates or whoever coming round and experiencing this this culture, this community, this space. Um, but actually on the flip side of it, as, as Mal talks about, that the deal that was there at the time was that you were at risk of being turfed out in six, three, I mean even a month's time towards the end of it. Um, and there was, there was no security there. Um, so as much as it's a great spectacle and it's a great showcase, um, the underlying model there and the underlying support isn't necessarily there to make it long term and sustainable. No, and you're you're ultimately at the mercy of a landlord that is there to make you know the bottom line work for their their building, and you're in there because they can't fill that space with anyone else currently. And if if they do find somebody that will take on that space at the proper market uh, value then you will you'll be out and i think that's that that again is you know we, we talked about that with joe as well is that is that you you know it's a creatives filling that gap in a space that isn't particularly useful for anybody else um and then helping it become that in some way and so um now we want to move on to the to talk about the final space westward works and i mean we, we've We've talked about this need for creative space that has been around for the last, say, 20 years. Um, and 
there hasn't been a, a sort of catch-all solution to that. There hasn't been a long-term space that has managed to sustain itself over this period. And then Westward Works came along with the potential to do that. We spoke to David Cook, um, who was the consultant that was brought in um, to, to sort of prove the viability, bring in funding and, and essentially start to deliver that project and transfer transform Westward Works which was a, an old DC Thompson print works, um, which used to used to print annuals. And this massive, like absolutely enormous, um, sort of stark concrete building with, um, I mean, essentially it was, it's so cold if you've ever been in there because it was designed to deal with machinery that was producing a massive amount of heat. So actually the infrastructure to put people inside that wasn't really there. Um, but the, I think it's over three floors with a basement. Yeah, it is absolutely enormous. And it was the um, sort of host space for the very first Dundee Design Festival. And actually, that was the point at which um, David Cook just started getting engaged in the, in the process. It was a, a conversation that he had with Blair Thompson on the night, uh, the opening night of Dundee Design Festival 2016 that then led to further conversations and then him being appointed as the uh, a consultant to essentially deliver the, the Westward Works project. Here's David Cook talking about the, the development and, and how that evolved over time. You know, for the, one of the challenges for Westward Works was it, it could be so many things, and Dundee requires so many things in a creative sense that it needed large-scale exhibition and event space for you know low cost and uh, grungy enough that it could could do all sorts of creative practice rather than being like an exhibition centre and also creative workspace. So the the challenge was you almost wanted to say to the people who had money and and the building owners, uh, DC Thompson. Look, it's going to be great. Give us, give us this opportunity. It will take twenty years, and it will produce masses of economic, social, and creative benefits, and put Dundee in the map. But we can't quite tell you what it's going to be, mm. and that was always the challenge of those within the creative sector understood what it could be, but trying to properly demonstrate that in a way that it was understood by people who were from other sectors like business or economic development or city city development or city you know city management so it was always a challenge because um some of the activities were existing in dundee and could be uh, relocated in but some were things that we were going to uh, reimagine through partnerships or invite people to come to dundee to do and until until you could secure those partnerships formally it didn't feel as real to the the outside sectors if you like and we, we were always in a bind of saying, well, we couldn't get full tenure in the building until we could demonstrate a business plan that was going to work. But we couldn't enact that business plan because we didn't have tenure to offer someone a lease, for example. So we were caught between a kind of short-termism and a long-termism, and, and that was one of the challenges for the project. But, yeah, it, 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 the thing, the advantage of this one was there was a building owner who wasn't interested, like most uh, commercial companies of we've got a redundant building we don't need it anymore we'll just put it in the market make money and move on um, so they were willing to allow the city and and the creative sector time to try and develop an idea which i think is to be commended i know it's not it's not worked out 
But I think the, the other thing that I was positive going into this was the context of the council and the city authorities was, was receptive to uh, creativity being central to the development of the city, to the economic development of the city and to the, uh, the, the city's brand identity and, and global identity was Dundee's a creative place. Come here, come to Dundee and experience that. So it felt like actually there were really strong opportunities both in the, with the context of the public sector being receptive, the potential therefore for public, public um, funding to help uh, a project like this. You had a benevolent owner and you had a creative community that was, uh, it was at the right moment to kind of look to grow into something. You know, there's, uh, the, the, uh, I was always very conscious of the wonderful uh, engagement in Dundee between creative practitioners of all kinds because of, not least because of Creative Dundee as an institute, as an organisation, but also some, partly because the city's scale. So another advantage was Dundee is not London. It is not uh, New York. It's not, it's not in scale like Glasgow or Edinburgh. So it's very possible to gather in a room uh, decision makers from a variety of sectors and try and, you know, shake out a decision. Um, so we, we, it was in many ways it had all the all the prerequisites for, for a successful project. I think the, uh, the, the kind of factor that came in that changed things was time. So these kind of projects and, and bigger ones like this, you can imagine three to five years and then you're on site and you're, you've developed it and you've started. So you kind of need a momentum in the first two or three years, which is you, you develop a plan, you, you create architectural solutions to deliver what you want and you raise the money to deliver them. And that still is going to take a couple of years. But in this case, um, funding stream, which came on board right at the time I became involved, this, the Taste City Deal program was was commenced and they had put out an open call to the city. We want transformative projects, which will create jobs for Dundee and Tayside and more, more widely. Um, and uh, there's a, you know, a, a pot of Scottish and UK government money, which will help transform the city. So it felt like, wow, here's something which, if, if the city is receptive to creative development, if, if there's a building which can be transformed over time, uh, then again, there was this um, prospect of what well, the resources to do this, which were not in, inconsiderable. When I joined, there was a, uh, to redevelop the whole building was uh, costed at 17 million before I started. So that formed a budget for me, like there's your top budget. You can't go beyond that. And it's a sizable amount of money in any case. So it, this, this it became the, the prime goal of, the, of my work was to try and secure city deal funding. And that program turned into, uh, you put in a business case, which went in in early 2017, and there was the idea that we'd get a response within, within that calendar year. Uh, you know, in the last few months or at the end of 2021, we still had not confirmed funding. So five years in, that program had, had been a, you know, a bit of a holy grail, you know, it's a, or a moving mirage that as you approach the resolution and advancement of funding, it seemed to recede further, further away from you, and you never quite reach it. Uh, I think, uh, well, it's public knowledge. There's been uh, an approach by an external developer to, um, you know, submitted a planning application or in the process of doing so, which would lead to the building's demolition and a, and a new building would put in its place for a mixed-use development, which would centre significantly on more student accommodation. So, if that proceeds. 
um, if they receive their planning consent, which will probably be into 2023, then the building will uh, be sold. There's been a, a and then and then and that uh, redevelopment will proceed. So, but there is the chance that that won't happen. But that's uh, where we are now. Is there is an end to the creative project that was imagined? The kind of takeaway for me is maybe I I could have been firmer to say no. The way to do this is to do it in stages and to, but we need to commit. We need to commit to the bigger picture, but we need to do it in stages because to do otherwise would destabilize it but it was just a hard it was a hard sell because people go we can't really do something in that tiny corner you know because the the community wasn't ready to take on you know 50,000 square feet it was Mm. maybe ready to take on two floors you know you could have created activity quite readily with a bit of resource to to break up the space you could have created um uh, activity quite readily in what would have been 10,000 square, square feet, you know, two, two or three floors of activity in one of the wings, but that would have still left the vast majority of the building unoccupied. And so you, you'd have still had to invest in quite a lot of infrastructure to create that. And you would have had to bring people along with you saying, no, if you trust us to do this bit, the rest will follow. And that's always just, a, I think I think in some ways the, the scale of the project was, the building was so big that maybe in, in, one, in one level that was the, that was the opportunity. It was, wow, you can do things you can't do anywhere in Scotland because of the, the volume, the space, and it's, if you like, it's roughness and it's cheapness. So I think I have to look uh, and say that, uh, look to myself and say, I think because we were always felt we were on the cusp of a breakthrough that we didn't communicate enough or frequently enough with the community. And we didn't, I wanted to make it um, feel like it was owned by the community. You know, it was their project. And, and I don't think we did quite enough to achieve that. Yeah, Westward Works, you know, it really did have a massive potential to be a huge space uh, for housing creativity, design, uh, exhibition spaces, um, you know, a museum, I think, as well was kind of touted to go in there. Um, it, it, it was such a, such a vast space. Um, and I think it was always going to be a challenge to try and get that space up and running. In a way, it was probably too big. You know, it's like, you know, we need space, but was Westward Works actually too much space? And I think it's hard to make the business case to get space up and running at the best of times. Um, And it's hard to find people to invest in space, to put the money in and do something with it. I think Westward Works kind of had that in a way. It had a plan. It had, had, you know, DC Thompson's there. It had had the space that was available. and I think the size of it drove it to have to go for this Taste Cities deal um, to make that work. And I think that's ultimately was the downfall, I think, there. And, and that once you're into that political cog, essentially, um, that, that moves very, very slowly and slower than it tells you it will, um, you, you know, you're going to have a community who's desperate for this to happen. Um, and they need it to move quickly because they're running lots and lots of businesses and trying to get on with their lives and do things. And if if it doesn't move at that, the speed that somebody that they need it to move at, they'll start to drift away from being interested because they have to kind of move on with life. And I think that that was a challenge that Westward Works was facing. Um, and I think that was ultimately how it sort of maybe un, undid itself. Um, 
I think what's really sad about that whole thing is that it's it's just going to be student flats. You know, that's that's the viable business model for that kind of space. It's like, you know, knock it down, build some student flats. You know, this is the opposite end of the problem that we've got. It's like we're trying to work out how to retain people, attract people back and provide interesting space beyond university. But actually what, what the space that we maybe needed to do that in will just be used to house more people as they pass through the city uh, on their way to other places. Yeah, and I, it is disheartening when you see another sort of courier headline that a, a giant building in the city, whether that's the 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 Bank of Scotland building, whether that's the the old Dundee College building, the, the, the go-to, the, the financial popular model at the moment is let's change it into student flats. I think it's probably very easy to see when you're when you're turning things into to uh, a flats or other things that the space the need doesn't exist anymore for for the creative space that it was being you know thought about for, but that's you know that's not true and it's very much still required. So just before we bring um, this episode to a close, I want to just bring um, Mal back in to get his perspective. Um, on the Westward Works development and I, I suppose the disappointment that he feels around it. Um, I think from, from what David said as well is that the project never got to the point at which it engaged the creative community for multiple reasons, but, but really it was because the, the, the finances weren't in place, therefore they weren't able to work out exactly what would happen and what the needs were and what the, the creative community would really get or want out of the space. And I think that, um, when we had the conversation with Mao um, around his needs for space, he had some really interesting points. So we wanted to, to, to bring this in. I think in, in, the, in the kind of early days, I, I was full of hope and excitement and because I could see the potential, especially because you know, we'd, we'd use that building a number of times. So mm. you know, we were commissioned to do various in- interactive installations there. I put an Arcadia festival there. So I used the building quite a bit. And so I could see the potential um, and because I've had the privilege to do a bit of traveling, I've seen what creative quarters could be like, you know, how you know, repurposing old, you know, interesting architecture. So I could see that I would always see what's possible. Uh, I always did my best to contribute, you know, ideas and always, you know, David was always a phone call or email away. I spoke to him a few times, you know, out with the organized events or meetings because I, I you know, whenever I saw something cool, I just email him, go, oh, check this out. Because I, I, I did feel a certain way, the fact that it's such an iconic Dundee building and nothing against David, but he was very much Glasgow and he brought his own people, which was fine to a certain point. But I, I did certainly feel a, a way in terms of how the conversation was going, in terms of local collaboration. And really, because um, I, I, I attended the recent meeting, which was like, you know, basically saying it's, it's basically over. Mm. It really kind of, because I asked a few questions and it became apparent to me that fundamentally the ambition of a DC Thompson was massive. They wanted something huge, right? And the only people that were able to kind of fill that void were creative people, right? We're like, well, we'll make it into a creative quarter. Mm-hmm. But it was just too, it was just too much. It was just silly to try and do something so big when the infrastructure of the team involved and the, the trustees, quite frankly, I don't, I don't believe that they could bring that to life personally. I mean, nothing against them. They're all wonderful individuals, 
but I just don't think collectively they had the, they could understand the creative vision, let alone be able to kind of deliver, deliver it in a way where they can articulate the economic argument. It was always going to be a big ask. Um, and I think in a way, we all just were taken along for the ride because we got excited by it. When in reality, we should have started small. And there was a particular moment when we were about to lose vision building. This is pre-COVID. We're going to maybe lose it. It was a big, we were always on the edge of maybe losing it. And one particular time, it got really close. And the um, a bunch of different people tried to help. And they tried to give us a small part of Westward Works uh, to try and kind of prove the case, make a cool little creative hub just in one small part of it, especially all the office, especially all the, the old offices, right? Yeah. And that yeah. came just before the Taste Cities deal nonsense. And they could never guarantee us that, you know, our work would not be disturbed by, you know, crazy works being done in the building. So no deal was ever signed. And the Taste Cities deal just took over because it came like a 17 million pound monster. Um, and it just got too big, as you got too, way too big. Um, and I just feel like something so big, we never really had control of it in the first place anyway. Yeah, I think Mal makes a, a really interesting point there. I think we need to make sure we have a, a board that is representative when you're doing a project like this of, of the community that it's going to be for um, and the challenges that are going to be faced trying to, to create a project like this. And, you know, they, perhaps with Westward Works, that wasn't the case um, 100%. So, you know, we need to, to look at that. And I think that extends also into the boards of other things. You know, if we're going to take design and creativity seriously in our city, then we need to make sure that people are represented at that level to be able to help steer these kind of projects and these kind of decisions. Um, you know, there, there are organisations in our city that, 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 you know, represent design. Um, but they have nobody on their board who is who's actually a designer. You know, when we bring in industry into boards, we tend to look at it through through finance. We bring in people who have financial backgrounds, or we bring in people who have property development backgrounds. You know, these are the kind of things that we we sort of see as important onto these these sort of uh, into these sort of roles. Um, but if we're trying to say that creativity and design needs to be taken more seriously, and I think we are within some of what's been discussed in this episode then that needs to be represented at all levels in our city. So that's been a, a look back at the history of Dundee's creative spaces, uh, certainly in the last sort of 10 or 15 years, um, and kind of looking at how people, different people have, have looked at addressing the need in different ways and, and kind of the, how, how, some of, how some of the successes have come out of some of those spaces and things that still exist today because of them. Um, but ultimately, you know, they've, they've, they've all kind of come to an end um, and they've all come to an end for, you know, different variety of reasons. And I think that's, that's a really interesting thing for us going into this, looking at how we uh, maybe look at putting together a better business model for creating spaces like this to kind of understand some of this has been tried before and, you know, some of it has had success and some of it has, has not. And, and how do we how do we learn from that? Yeah, and I think the, the episode two that we're going to go into is, is very much looking at the amount of empty space and, and why it's so difficult and so complex to utilise that. 
obviously we've mentioned lots of projects, organisations, um, other podcast episodes, like the the full version of of Donna's uh, Fleet Collective episode on uh, Creative Chit Chat. There's also the Helsinki episodes that we mentioned as well, and the article that we wrote for Creative Dundee, which. If you did have a particular interest in them, we'll put all the links to that and all the, the organisations mentioned and projects mentioned um, in the show notes so you can go and check it out in your own time. So that's it for episode one. I want to say thanks to all our guests and everyone who contributed to this episode of the podcast and, and all the others as well. Um, yeah, it wouldn't be possible to put together um, this series without you. So thank you very much. Um, and if you've been listening and have any particular questions or there are issues that resonate um, or you've got some thoughts to build on some of the things that we've discussed then you can tweet us or send us a message on Instagram it's at agency of none um, but yeah that's it for the episodes we'll see you in episode 2 <laughs>